Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much for this kind introduction. Let's start with a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who taught the hearts of the faithful through the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation, through Christ our Lord. Holy Mary, Seat of Wisdom, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Philip Neri, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So in this lecture, I will first uh, sketch the development of the veneration and reservation of the Eucharist in the Church's long history. This overview will offer theological insights into the worship that is due to Christ present in the sacrament of the altar, and the importance of Eucharistic adoration for the spiritual life of the faithful and for the good of the whole Church today. First, veneration of the Eucharist in the patristic period. Clearly, Eucharistic adoration in the modern sense was not known in the first Christian millennium, but it has its roots in early Christian worship and in the teachings of the Church Fathers. In the writings of the patristic period, we find a strong sense of adoration before the Lord and, at the same time, of reverence for the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, which is expressed, above all, in the liturgical act of receiving Holy Communion. Worship begins with the acknowledgement of God and of his sacred presence, which calls the human person to respond in faith and love. In the biblical context, a characteristic gesture of worship is prostrating oneself or kneeling in the presence of God. To give just a few examples, at the dedication rite of the temple in Jerusalem, King Solomon offered prayer and supplication while kneeling, quote, before the altar of the Lord, with hands outstretched towards heaven, 1 Kings 8.54. In the Gospel of St. Luke, Simon Peter, overawed by the miraculous catch of fish in the Sea of Galilee, fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, Luke 5.8. Jesus himself knelt down on the Mount of Olives to pray to his heavenly Father before his arrest, Luke 22.41. In the Pauline letters, there are two key testimonies. Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And Philippians 2.10, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In the vision of heavenly worship in the book of Revelation, the four living creatures and the 24 elders prostrate themselves in adoration of the Lamb. Revelations 5 and 19. The early Christians adopted the gesture of kneeling in their prayer and worship as Tertullian attests in his treatise on prayer written around the year 200. He writes, the angels likewise all pray, every creature prays, cattle and wild beasts pray and bend their knees. 
The often cited instruction to stand for liturgical prayer in joyful imitation of the risen Christ refers specifically to Sundays and the Easter season. The same Tertullian affirms this practice but then continues, quote, who would hesitate every day to prostrate himself before God or at least in the first prayer with which we enter on the daylight. At fasts, moreover, and stations, no prayer should be made without kneeling and the remaining customary marks of humility. For we are not only praying, but deprecating and making satisfaction to God our Lord." End of quote. Canon 20 of the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 prescribes that public prayer on Sundays and in the Easter season should be done standing. However, in a letter written around 400, St. Augustine states that he does not know whether this practice is, in fact, observed throughout the Church. In general, ancient Christian authors saw kneeling in prayer as an expression of gratitude and humility in the presence of God the Creator. Origen, in his treatise on prayer, written around the year 231, reflects on the dispositions of the body that sued the soul during prayer. According to the great biblical theologian, standing is preferred, but kneeling is required when a person conscious of his sins against God prays for healing and forgiveness. But kneeling is not just a penitential gesture. Rather, it is the reverential sign of creation acknowledging God as the Lord of the universe. In this context, Origen makes use of Ephesians 3.14 and Philippians 2.10 to introduce a cosmic dimension when he speaks of the spiritual kneeling of all creation before its creator. This idea is echoed in the early 4th century by the apologist Arnobius of Sicca. In a similar vein, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, towards the end of the 4th century, teaches his catechumens, preparing for baptism, quote, from what has been said and read and from what you can discover and ponder, that by analogy from the greatness and the beauty of created things, reference to the Book of Wisdom, you may have a concept of the Creator, and devoutly bending the knee before the Maker of the universe, of things sensible and intelligible, visible and invisible, with grateful and pious tongue, with unwearied lips, you may praise God, saying, How manifold are your works, O Lord! In wisdom you have wrought them all. Psalm 103 or 4. For to you is due honor, glory, and majesty, now and forever. Amen. End of quote. The sense uh, here of creation adoring the presence of its creator, which is so beautifully articulated, in the patristic period would later become an important element of Western Eucharistic devotion, especially with the development of the Feast of Corpus Christi. When we come to the sacrament of the Eucharist, we find already in the early church a strong understanding of the real presence of Christ. From the third century onwards, there's a growing sense of growing stream of authors who insist that the consecrated species must be treated with the utmost care and veneration. Thus, in the early 3rd century, Origen offers a forceful exhortation to the faithful in his homilies on Exodus. He writes, You who are accustomed to take part in divine mysteries know, when you receive the body of the Lord, how you protect it with all caution and veneration, lest any small part fall from it, lest anything of the consecrated gift be lost. 
for you believe, and correctly, that you are answerable if anything falls from there by neglect. With no less clarity, Cyril of Jerusalem instructs those who have just received the sacraments of initiation in the late 4th century to, uh, quote, partake of the Lord's body, taking care to lose no part of it. Such a loss would be like a mutilation of your own body. Why, if you had been given gold dust, would you not take the utmost care to hold it fast, not letting a grain slip through your fingers, lest you be by so much the poorer? How much more carefully, then, will you guard against losing so much as a crumb of that which is more precious than gold or precious stones? Eastern church fathers, such as St. John Chrysostom and St. Cyril of Jerusalem, regularly admonish their faithful to receive Holy Communion with a fervent faith that is expressed in gestures of reverence and adoration. An ancient order for communion in the Coptic tradition says, let all prostrate themselves on the ground, small and great, and thus begin the distribution of communion. In perfect harmony with the Eastern tradition, Augustine of Hippo writes with characteristic concision, Nemo ilam carnem manducat nisi prius adoraverit, pecemus non adorando. No one eats that flesh without first adoring it. We would sin were we not to adore it. Pope Pius XII cited this passage from Augustine in his encyclical Mediato Dei of 1947, and so did Pope Paul VI in his encyclical Mysterium Fidei of 1965. Pope Benedict XVI drew on the passage in his post-synodal apostolic exhortation Sacramentum Caritatis of 2007 to elaborate on the close link between reception and adoration of the Eucharist. He writes, in the Eucharist, the Son of God comes to meet us and desires to become one with us. Eucharistic adoration is simply the natural consequence of the Eucharistic celebration, which is itself the Church's supreme act of adoration. Receiving the Eucharist means adoring him whom we receive. Only in this way do we become one with him and are given, as it were, a foretaste of the beauty of the heavenly liturgy." End of quote. From early on, the Church has been striving to find the most appropriate ritual forms for the sublime moment of Holy Communion, thus giving visible witness to her faith and love for the Eucharist. At the end of the patristic era, the reverential gestures of prostrating in the East or kneeling in the West before receiving the sacrament developed. In the early centuries, communion was given in the hand of the faithful, and this was not at all considered irreverent. However, there was a shift towards giving communion directly on the tongue in both East and West, and this practice seems to have become the norm in the Latin West by the 9th century, along with the use of a thin wafer of unleavened bread. I would argue that communion on the tongue was an organic development in the light of the Church Fathers' teachings. Second point, Eucharistic adoration in the medieval West. For most of the first millennium, veneration of the Eucharist was confined to the actual liturgical celebration and focused on the reception of communion. In the course of the Latin Middle Ages, the heightened sense of the Lord's abiding presence in the consecrated species led to adoration of the Blessed Sacrament also outside the celebration of Holy Mass. Two great Eucharistic controversies had a lasting impact not only on Catholic doctrine but also on liturgy and devotion. 
The first controversy in the late Carolingian period involved two monks of the Abbey of Corby in Picardy, France, Pascasius Radbertus, who died in 859, and Ratramnus, who died around 870. The second controversy in the age of papal reform was prompted by the teachings of Berengar, rector of the Cathedral School of Tours in France, who died around 1088, whose main opponent was the Benedictine monk Lanfranc of Beck, later Archbishop of Canterbury, who died around 1089. These intense disputes helped to shape and clarify the theological language for the presence of Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist especially since the second controversy, which had wide repercussions throughout the Western Church, including a direct intervention of Pope Gregory VII, popular piety was incited by an increasing number of reported Eucharistic miracles, such as bleeding hosts, which were taken to offer proof to the senses of the real presence of Christ in the consecrated species of bread and wine. In the middle of the 12th century, the term transubstantiatio was coined to account for the effect of the Eucharistic consecration. Under the leadership of Pope Innocent III, the author of an influential treatise on the Mass, De Sacro Altaris Mysterio, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 taught the doctrine of transubstantiation in its profession of faith, which reads, there is indeed one universal church of the faithful in which the priest himself, Jesus Christ, is also the sacrifice. His body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the appearances of bread and wine, the bread being transubstantiated into the body by the divine power and the wine into the blood to the effect that we receive from what is his, what he has received from what is ours, in order that the mystery of unity may be accomplished." End of quote. The doctrine of transubstantiation received an extended treatment in St. Thomas Aquinas, a treatise on the Eucharist in the Summa Theologiae, and was restated by the Second Council of Lyon in 1274. The interplay of doctrinal clarification and popular devotion led to a keener sense of the real presence of Christ in the liturgy of the Mass. Kneeling during the Eucharistic prayer had become increasingly common among the laity since the ninth century as the adequate posture of worshipping Christ made presence in the sacrament. Starting from France, possibly as a reaction to the Albigensian denial of incarnational and sacramental reality, priests would elevate the consecrated host for the adoration of the faithful after pronouncing the words of Christ over it. The practice was confirmed by the Bishop of Paris, Order of Sully, in the early 13th century, and in the course of the same century, the elevation of the consecrated chalice was likewise introduced. Both elevations could be accompanied by an elevation candle, by the ringing of a handbell, or even by the tolling of the church bells. St. Francis of Assisi promoted these new forms of Eucharistic devotion enthusiastically and strongly encouraged the lay faithful to kneel at the elevation of the consecrated species at Mass and when the Blessed Sacrament is carried in procession. The reservation of the Eucharist to make it available to the sick and the dying has its origins in Christian antiquity. 
In the early medieval period, it was established to keep the consecrated hosts in churches to protect them from profanation and to prevent superstitious practices. And various places and forms of reservation are attested. The Conditorium mentioned in Ordo Romanus I, a description of the solemn papal mass in Easter week dating from around the year 700, probably means a cupboard or chest kept in the sacristy, a custom maintained in northern Italy, including Milan, until the 16th century. When the sacrament was reserved in the church itself, it could be placed on the altar in a casket made of precious metal. In England and France, it was common to suspend a pyx, a round receptacle, sometimes resembling a tower, or a dove-shaped vessel, also known as columba or peristerium, with the sacrament before the high altar. In late medieval Germany, the consecrated toasts were often kept in a monumental and ornate sacrament house on the gospel side of the chancel. The Fourth Lateran Council decreed that the Eucharist should be kept in a safe place and locked, but did not specify a particular location. The ordinal of the Dominican Missal of 1256 and the ceremonial of the Augustinian Friars of 1290 stipulate that the sacrament is to be reserved on the high altar, the Altare Maius. The common source for the, the practice of these orders, there's apparently no similarly precise indication in contemporary Franciscan documents, may well be the papal curia, the papal chapel, where the sacrament was customarily, though with exceptions, kept at the high altar. From the late 13th century, the word tabernaculum, tent, was employed to indicate the receptacle for the Eucharist. The widely read liturgical commentator William Durandus notes that in imitation of the Ark of the Covenant and of the Tent of Meeting, Book of Exodus, in some churches an ark or tabernacle, tabernaculum, is placed in which the body of the Lord and relics are kept. The biblical association is significant since the Tent of Meeting was God's presence among the people of Israel in the desert. The prologue of St. John's Gospel states that the divine word was made flesh and dwelt eskenosen, and Greek literally pitched his tent among us. In the Apocalypse, the heavenly Jerusalem is evoked with the words, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men, which reads in the Latin Vulgate translation, Ecce tabernaculum dei cum hominibus. Medieval veneration of the Eucharist reached its climax with the introduction of the Feast of Corpus Christi and the forms of popular devotion associated with it, procession, exposition, and benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. The proximate origins of Corpus Christi are connected with the visions of Saint Juliana of Cornillon, died around 1258, a lay sister serving in a leper house connected with the Premonstratensian Abbey of Mont Cornillon near Liège in modern Belgium. The idea of a new liturgical feast dedicated to the Eucharist resonated widely, was promoted especially by the Dominicans, and its observance spread throughout the Low Countries and Germany. Jacques Pantaleon, Archdeacon of Campine in the Diocese of Liège, and a great supporter of Juliana, became Pope as Urban IV in 1261, and in his ball named Transitorus of 1264, he decreed the celebration of Corpus Christi for the whole church on the Thursday after Trinity Sunday, the 
date was chosen to connect the new feast with Maundy Thursday when the institution of the Eucharist is commemorated and it was in fact the first available Thursday after the conclusion of the Easter season according to the liturgical calendar at the time. The institution of the new liturgical feast is often connected with the Eucharistic miracle of Bolsena in central Italy in 1263 when a priest from Bohemia who had asked for a sign to dispel his doubts about the presence of Christ in the sacrament during the celebration of Mass saw the consecrated host turn into flesh and several drops of blood sprinkle on the corporal. The blood-stained corporal is still venerated in the cathedral of nearby Orvieto. However, the earliest sources for the miracle of Bolsena date from 1337 and there's no reference to it in any of Pope Urban's writings. Urban IV died shortly after promulgating the Feast of Corpus Christi and his immediate successor seemed to have little interest in the new feast. Nonetheless, its celebration spread throughout the Western Church thanks to the initiatives of local bishops and religious orders and in Northern Europe it was particularly associated with processions of the Blessed Sacrament. The first Corpus Christi procession is attested in Cologne, Germany between 1265 and 1277. At this early stage the consecrated host was actually carried in a closed pyxis but soon a monstrous or ostensory from the Latin monstrario ostendere which both mean to show with a glass frame was used to show the sacrament to the people for adoration. A universal observance of the feast was renewed by John XII, an Avignon Pope in fact, in 1317 who promulgated a collection of canon law authorized by his predecessor Clement V and hence known as the Clementine Constitutions. These documents included also Urban IV's original bull, Transitorus. Recent uh, historical research has redemonstrated really the traditional ascription of the Mass and the office for Corpus Christi to St. Thomas Aquinas. It is most likely that he compiled and composed the liturgical texts during his stay at the papal court in Orvieto between 1261 and 1265, including the sequence, Lauda Sion, the hymns, Pange Lingua for Vespers, Sacris Solemnis for Matins, and Verbum Supernum for Lords, as well as the Adoro Te Devote. The impact of Corpus Christi on late medieval Europe can hardly be overestimated. The his English historian, Mary Rubin's acclaimed study on Corpus Christi offers a lively account of how the feast, the veneration of the sacrament became the central symbol of a culture that was universally shared in Western Christendom until about 1500. Now the introduction of a fixed tabernacle on the high altar is usually associated with the liturgical reforms that were implemented after the Council of Trent, 1545-1563, Catholic Church's great response to the challenge of the Protestant Reformation. However, this practice was already promoted by reforming bishops before Trent and can be traced back especially to 15th century Tuscany. While the typical interior of a Gothic church was structured by visual limits and barriers, the sacred architecture of the Renaissance, taking its inspiration from ancient Christian basilicas, 
aimed at the creation of a unified space. There was to be an unobstructed view of the main sanctuary from the nave, with its focal point on the high altar and increasingly on the reserved Eucharist. High altar tabernacles were introduced in the cathedrals of Volterra in 1471 and Prato in 1487. The unified church interior gave the liturgical rites in the sanctuary greater visibility and so enhanced their potential for engaging the congregation. At the same time, the pastoral functions of the nave as the place of preaching and of sacramental confession were brought into greater relief. Such transformations would come to full fruit in the Tridentine reform. Without ever being strictly prescribed in the Roman liturgical books, the high altar tabernacle was gradually adopted in early modern Catholicism. This flourishing of Eucharistic devotion has attracted criticism, not only in the Protestant Reformation, but also in the liturgical movement of the 20th century. Critics identify an unfortunate shift from a biblically grounded reception of the sacrament to a largely visual piety, Schaufremigkeit in German. In the heyday of liturgical renewal around the Second Vatican Council, one could hear the catchphrase, the Eucharist is for eating, not looking at. It is often argued that the heightened sense of reverence and awe towards the Eucharist in the high Middle Ages deterred the faithful from receiving the sacrament. Holy Communion became a rare event in the life of a Christian. There is some truth to this argument, but it needs to be examined in a wider context. For the first three centuries, when Christians formed highly motivated and tightly knit communities that were often viewed with suspicion from society in general and at times suffered violent persecution, it is generally assumed that all those who participated in the celebration of the Sunday Eucharist also shared in sacramental communion. By the late fourth century, however, the frequency of communion had declined significantly. By the late fourth century, leading bishops such as John Chrysostom in Constantinople deplored that among the masses who joined the church in the post-Constantinian period, many showed a lack of commitment to the moral demands of their new faith, and this led them to receive communion only once or twice a year. In the Carolingian reform, bishops encouraged the faithful to receive the sacrament more often, and some insisted on an obligation to weekly communion, but these efforts had little apparent success, and ecclesiastical legislation largely followed the pattern set by the Council of Agde in the south of France, held in 506, which obliged general communion three times a year at Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. It is correct to say that in the course of the Middle Ages, the people's more vivid faith in Christ's presence in the Eucharistic species, combined with a sense of their own sinfulness, made the reception of communion an even more exceptional occasion. Hence, the Fourth Lateran Council saw the need to legislate that the faithful had to receive the sacrament at least once a year in the Easter period in Pascha. However, the relation between Eucharistic devotion and the infrequency of communion is not as straightforward as claimed by 20th century critics. The Mass in the Central Middle Ages already had two rituals that served as substitutes for receiving communion and were very popular among the laity, the Pax and Blessed Bread. The Kiss of Peace was exchanged by means of the Pax, known also as the Pax breed or Pacificale, a tablet made of 
glass, wood or metal, and often adorned with an image such as crucifixion or the Lamb of God. The Pax was passed from the clergy to the laity and was kissed in turn. That's how the peace was exchanged. A special observance on Sundays and feast days was the blessing of bread that had been prepared and offered by the women of a household in the village or a neighborhood in the city organized by Rota. After the Mass, the priest blessed the bread, holy loaf in English sources, and then the faithful would receive some of the bread into their homes. It would be far-fetched to see Eucharistic adoration as just another alternative to the reception of sacramental communion, and it certainly had nothing to do with Jansenism, as suggested in an article by Nathan Mitchell. A negative attitude towards Eucharistic adoration can be detected among some protagonists of liturgical renewal in the mid-20th century. Pius XII felt the need to defend adoration outside of Mass in Mediato Dei. Benedict XVI admits in Sacramentum Caritatis that, quote, during the early phases of the liturgical reform, the inherent relationship between Mass and adoration of the Blessed Sacrament was not always perceived with sufficient clarity. It is telling that Eucharistic adoration and devotion are not mentioned at all, as far as I can see, in the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Cogelium. Pope Paul VI recognized this deficiency in his encyclical on the Holy Eucharist Mysterium Fidei, which he published in September 1965, while Vatican II was still in session. The encyclical recalls the worship of Latria that ought to be paid to the sacrament of the Eucharist, Paul VI writes, both during Mass and outside of it, by taking the greatest possible care of consecrated hosts, by exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful, and by carrying them about in processions to the joy of great numbers of the people. To foster Eucharistic devotion, Paul VI recommends visits to the Blessed Sacrament during the day to all the faithful, and he sees religious, both men and women, bound in a special way to adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. These exhortations of Pope Paul VI did not prevent a decline in Eucharistic devotion after Vatican II, to which the implementation of the liturgical reform contributed, especially the removal of the Eucharistic tabernacle from its central position at the high altar of the church to a peripheral place in the sanctuary or even to a side chapel, as happened in countless churches throughout the world. From a historical perspective, the fixed high altar tabernacle is a relatively recent introduction, as already mentioned, it is a well-known fact that there had been diverse forms of Eucharistic reservation before, and some of these forms were restored in the post-conciliar period. A merely historical approach, however, falls short of the symbolic dimension of such a change in its given context. By the 20th century, the high altar tabernacle presented itself as the immemorial custom of Western Catholicism. When the reserved Eucharist was moved to a less prominent place in the church building, the message was conveyed that it had become less important for the worship and life of the people, and perhaps wasn't as important as we used to think after all. The impression was given that the reserved sacrament was dethroned, in particular where it was replaced by the priest's chair in imitation of the bishop's seat in an ancient Roman basilica. Whatever good intentions the reformers 
may have had, a stable existing custom cannot simply be substituted without a loss of symbolic meaning. In the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, a renewal of Eucharistic adoration was promoted by deepening our understanding of it in a personalist key. There's a wonderful old-fashioned expression for the Eucharistic presence of Christ in Italian, which is impossible to translate into English, Cristo Sacramentato. Eucharistic adoration is a personal encounter with the living Lord Jesus who gives himself to us in the sacrament of his love. It is inspiring to see how new generations of Catholics have discovered in their personal encounter with Cristo Sacramentato a source of strength and joy in their life of faith. This surely is a great grace in the difficulties and trials the Church is facing today. Allow me to comment on two aspects that, in my view, should need to be addressed to reap even greater fruits from the contemporary revival of adoration. First, I have observed that exposition of the Blessed Sacrament is sometimes done quite casually. The current liturgical book regulates that for exposition of the Blessed Sacrament in the monstrance, four to six candles are lighted as at Mass and incense is used. Exposition is meant to be a solemn moment and some ritual effort should be made to mark the Lord's Eucharistic presence. Where this is not possible, for whatever reason, we can still adore the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle. One of the main reasons why the tabernacle is meant to occupy a central place in a church building is precisely to make it a focus of prayer and veneration. Moreover, when the Eucharist is exposed for a longer period, it is important to make sure that there will be worshippers present throughout that period. It is not only irreverent to have a monstrance exposed in a church or chapel without anyone present, it also risks theft and worse, profanation. My second observation concerns the idea that celebration and adoration of the Eucharist should be seen as separate from, if not opposed to, each other. In his homily for Corpus Christi 2012, Benedict XVI identified and rejected what he called a unilateral interpretation of the Second Vatican Council, which restricted the Eucharist to its moment of celebration and by doing so excluded, in the original Italian, the Pope even uses the word penalized, the dimension of adoration. Benedict does not question, quote, the centrality of the celebration in which the Lord summons his people gathers it round the dual table of the word and the bread of life, nourishes and unites it with himself in the offering of the sacrifice, end of quote. However, it would be erroneous and even harmful for the spiritual life of the faithful to build up a contrast or even conflict between the celebration and the adoration of the Eucharist. The Pope defines adoration as an act of faith and prayer addressed to the Lord Jesus really present in the sacrament of the altar, and therefore adoration is indeed the spiritual context or environment of the liturgical celebration. As Benedict explains, only if the celebration is preceded, accompanied, and followed by this inner attitude of faith and adoration can the liturgical action express its full meaning and value. Elements of adoration are often lacking in the celebration of the post-conciliar Mass and need to find a more prominent role in it. Such elements include silence, 
reverential postures for the Eucharistic prayer and for receiving communion, a choice of music that is in the service of the sacred and in general less activism. I would like to conclude with the witness of two saints of our age for whom Eucharistic adoration was at the heart of their profound relationship with God and with their neighbor. The first is Saint Teresa of Calcutta, who insisted that her sisters should spend a considerable part of every day in prayer and adoration before the Blessed Sacrament. When she was asked whether her sisters should not use some of this time to minister to those in need, she replied, if my sisters did not spend so much time in prayer, they could not serve the sick and the poor at all. Mother Teresa showed in her life that love of God and love of neighbor are truly inseparable. For her, Eucharistic adoration was the foundation of her sister's work of charity. She said, it has brought us so close to each other. We love each other better, but I think we love the poor with greater and deeper faith and love. My second witness is the remarkable blessed Carlo Acutis, who was born of an Italian family in London in 1991 and died of leukemia near Milan in 2006. Carlos seemed an average youth who enjoyed sports, played video games, loved animals. But in truth, he was a mystic who was on fire with love for Jesus Christ. As a young boy, though he was born into a non-practicing Catholic family, he went to daily mass and to adoration several times a week whenever possible. As a teenager, he used his computer programming skills to create a website with the aim of cataloging all the known Eucharistic miracles in the world. He was looking for new ways of drawing his generation to Christ. Carlos' Eucharistic devotion was inspired by Francis of Assisi, whom he discovered as a Eucharistic saint. I find this particularly noteworthy because Francis has been presented to us through so many filters that it is easy to overlook how profoundly his devotion to the sacrament of the altar shaped his life. Carlo's devotion had an endearing candor and simplicity. He said, the Eucharist is my highway to heaven, and if we go out in the sun, we get a suntan, but when we get in front of Jesus in the Eucharist, we become saints. The boy experienced in adoration the presence of a trusted friend. He said, to him I can always confide something. I can also complain, question him about his silence, and tell him what I do not understand. And then within me, I find a word that he sends me, a moment of the gospel, and fills me with conviction and certainty. The presence of Jesus in his life animated Carlos' practical charity, which is attested by many of those who knew him, and it gave him the strength and serenity to hand over his earthly life to God at the age of 15. Blessed Carlo is a great inspiration for us to discover or deepen the adoration of the Lord Jesus in the sacrament of his love. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.